Thank you for joining us for In All Things, a weekly podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I'm Rachel Joseph. Your host for In All Things is Dean Weaver, State Clerk of the EPC. We pray that God uses Dean and his guests to inform and inspire you about the EPC and how God is working in and through our global movement of Evangelical Presbyterian Churches. The motto of our family of congregations is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, here's Dean. And thank you again, Rachel Joseph, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another edition of In All Things, a weekly podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Every Friday, we drop a podcast that we hope will be of benefit for you, whether you're in the EPC or just listening in over the shoulder, snuggling up next to and being a part of this extended family that is the body of Christ. We're glad that you joined us, and we hope that you'll like us on social, share the good word with others, invite them to join as well. It is a conversational format. There's a lot of different ways in which people go about podcasts, but our target audience is that 30-minute going for a walk around the lake with your dog, driving to work, or maybe sitting down at the beginning or end of a long day with a cup of coffee and You just want to listen in on a good conversation by a couple of people who are wrestling with the things that matter, having conversations that uh, make a difference and can be something that maybe it causes you to think, encourages you, and hopefully a better follower of Jesus Christ. And while we focus largely on the work of the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, I think these conversations have much broader applications and implications. And so we do hope that you will pass on the good word about the EPC to others. And God is doing some really amazing things, not just at the national level. We exist to serve the presbyteries and the local churches where I get excited about what God is doing is through many of our local congregations. Uh, One of the most vibrant congregations that I'm aware of is not called Coke. It's not called Sprite. It's called (laughs) Pepsi. It's the Parker Evangelical Presbyterian Church and their lead pastor, Doug Ressler, is with us today. So Doug, welcome to In All Things. It's great to be here, Dean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you back. I think you're a return person. Return person, that's right. Yeah, so back by popular demand. (laughs) So um, before we get into the conversation with Doug, who's just, man, he's done a ton of things, I want to talk a little bit about our sponsor for today's podcast, which is Benefits Resources, Inc., or BRI, as it's known in-house in the EPC. You may or may not be aware that the Evangelical Presbyterian Church has its own self-funded health care plan, and what many people don't realize is a retirement plan, a really well-cared-for well-curated, highly productive plan that actually is making a huge difference. And I want to highlight one aspect of the retirement plan today at BRI that people may not be aware of. For the rising number, particularly baby boomers, are getting close to their retirement. Did you know that you can use a part of your retirement savings as a housing allowance? In other words, it too, even as you're withdrawing tax-deferred income into your retirement, as you withdraw some of that, it can be tax-sheltered toward your housing allowance. I'm surprised at how many retiring pastors did not know that they can use their EPC retirement benefits as an ongoing housing allowance even after they've retired. 
If you'd like to learn more information about that, we encourage you to call here at the Office of the General Assembly and talk to someone in BRI about how you can utilize your retirement income as it relates to a ongoing housing allowance. You can also talk with our CFO, our Chief Financial Officer, Pat Quelio, who's really gifted in that area as well. And they love to pick up the phone and answer your questions because in the Office of the General Assembly, as we are with BRI, we are here to serve you as you serve the church. We don't have any technical sponsors for this podcast. We were given $1 by Tom Ricks, uh, so our only paid sponsor is EPC Church Planning. But I have it on good authority from Carolee Richendoller, our new director in BRI, that they might want to give us a dollar too. Right on. Yeah, so we're, we're growing uh, in our potential of corporate sponsorships. And if you're interested in sponsoring in all things and get the word out, we'd be delighted to get a dollar from you too. Great. So, uh, Doug, you're involved in so many things. You're one of these high-capacity mm-hmm. people that, like, kind of a fiber optic cable, you seem to get better as you get busier. And mm-hmm. some people get tired, you get more energized. You're not only a lead pastor of a super vibrant church that's in a growing area of suburban Denver and Parker, but you've been involved in the Big C Church mm-hmm. for a long time yeah. in a lot of different ways. To what some people might not know is you are one of the authors that helped to write our human sexuality mm-hmm. report years ago, which has yep. become a hugely important document for right. us, especially in these cultural moments. But you also are super involved in some work in parts of Eastern Africa mm-hmm. and Ethiopia and Somalia and in training indigenous pastors and church planners. So there's lots of good gospel ministry going on. But in all of that kind of vibrant stuff, you also make space in your schedule to be part of the MVC. Right, right. Sounds very sterile, right? right? The the Ministerial Vocations (laughs) Committee. The EPC at the office and the General Assembly, our largest court of the church, has got permanent committees and standing committees. A standing committee stands during General Assembly Uh only alone, but a permanent committee exists between assemblies to carry out the work of the assembly and to recommend work to the assembly. So it's kind of the the ongoing work of the General Assembly in a very practical way. A lot of denominations, they hash out everything when they come to their national meetings. So it's this big Mm -hmm. thing where everybody's on the floor wrestling through stuff. We hash out, we churn out, we do a lot of the heavy lifting between meetings so that we can present work at those meetings to be overseen, to evaluate it, to be implemented. Because we come out of a culture of trust, we have people all the time in these permanent teams working on things that the General Assembly then has either authorized or is asked to consider. Why have you dedicated so much of your precious time to something called the Ministerial Vocations Committee? Well, that's a great question. I think it goes back to what you just said there, Dean. I mean, I have a deep love for the church, not just the local church, my local church, which I'm very blessed to be part of and love dearly, but also the Big C Church and wanting to see just the Great Commission get fulfilled, just just to see the church thrive in its mission to reach the lost with the gospel and to minister effectively to those in their communities. One of the reasons I'm Presbyterian, because I believe we're all connected together in that work. I'm not, I'm not a Baptist. I'm not something else because I believe in the connectional nature of our church. And so wanting to be a part of that, wanting to serve, wanting to offer what I can, my gifts in those areas, I really feel that it's a responsibility. And it's something that I, I, I'm very serious about. And my church, thankfully, is also very committed to and giving me that time and actually encouraging me this direction, mainly because we, we want to take what we've discovered at Pepsi and some of the, the blessings that we've received. And if we can, share it and help people engage it and help, help other churches become 
vibrant, thriving, healthy communities that, again, are, are sharing the gospel. So that the work of the NBC is critical to that. I mean, we are the ones at the denominational, national denominational level that are kind of developing processes and these kinds of things to help raise up pastors, encourage pastors, encourage churches all along the way. I was a local ministerial committee chair for a number of years, and this inter- interacting with the MVC was a really positive thing for me as a MINCOM chair, just really helpful. So I wanted to, you know, whatever I can to serve, that's what I want to do, and that's why I'm here. So let me let me probe that in yeah. two ways if I could. I'm a little older than you. You've got kids in your t- early 20s. That's right. I've got kids in my early 30s. Yeah. But to the younger pastors coming up, uh, they might not see the distinction because mm-hmm. we've both got gray hair on right. our faces. Right. What would you say to the younger pastors, the yeah. young women and men that are coming into the EPC or just starting out in yeah. their ministry, maybe the first five or 10 years, and they haven't, they haven't seen the value yeah. in the large C church, yeah. whether it's the work you do in Ethiopia and Somalia or in the Ministry of Vacations Committee or your presbytery. They're very connected and involved in their local church, as yeah. they should be, but they don't maybe see how being a part of the bigger church makes them a more effective pastor or helps their congregation they're serving be more biblically faithful. So could you speak to the younger pastor and why there's a value in sacrificing your time and energy and, and efforts in something that's outside of the local church? Absolutely. For me, it's just expanded the horizons. I mean, it's so tempting to be so focused on kind of the everyday and get locked in on that. And again, I, I, I'm there, like I'm, I'm involved in the everyday. Yeah. Raised four kids. My wife and I, we've been married almost 30 years. Like I get it. I get the demands of life, the demands of ministry, the demands of local church ministry. It's tough to sort of imagine having the time to go outside of that or to push outside of that. What ends up happening, if that's sort of the limit of your biblical imagination, is that the horizons of your world sort of shrink and you don't get to see the the greatness and the bigness of God in and the, all the different facets and the ways that he's working, whether it's, you know, working denominationally and seeing how he's working and hearing all these stories about he's working in churches from rural America to urban centers to suburban America to world outreach and all the things that are going on globally. I mean, my goodness, it is, I, I will tell you, like, it has been absolutely life-giving and essential for mm-hmm. me as, as a local church pastor to engage God's church globally even and, and that has helped me have perspective, kingdom perspective, just how big and beautiful the kingdom of God is, which then I bring back to my local church. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden things like COVID or these really significant crises that we go through that can absolutely cripple pastors and have crippled pastors. We're going to talk about the pilot project in a little bit. Have crippled pastors. I will be honest, it's been my engagement with the big C church around the world and around our country and around our denomination that has helped me maintain a healthy, godly perspective on those things. And I've actually thrived through these seasons. And our churches thrive through these seasons because they understand the bigger picture. We're not just sort of crippled by what's just happening in our little neck of the woods in Parker, Colorado. We get a, a bigger picture of what God's doing. The transforming power of kingdom perspective right. and experience. Um, I love the picture you painted for biblical imagination. Mm-hmm. And how big is your horizon? That's a great metaphor to hang on to that I want to think about more today. So thank you for that. Now, I know you're a process guy. Yeah. You're right. So you're on this ministerial vocations committee, which does a lot of deep thinking about process, which, you know, some people's eyes glaze over when they talk about process, but you get more engaged when you think about it. Talk to me about how being involved in the ministerial vocations committee 
bringing these ways in which you look at and think about process and how that has helped result in what is about to become a pilot project Mm -hmm. developed from the MVC. So talk to us about getting there from here, but then we want to hear what the pilot project is and how that's going to serve the greater church. Totally. So when I came into the EPC in 2009 and was really blessed to be around out West, Presbyterian of the West, that's where I'm from, a lot of the founders of the EPC, Jim Dixon, Tom Melt, a lot of these guys and gals that were there at the beginning. It's really an epicenter for us. I mean, Faith was one of the original 12 and it's just grown and it's really one of the the strongest rooted communities for the EPC's work in the country. Absolutely. And so, so being around them, I got to hear the original vision of the EPC, which excited me coming from the PCSA. So I got excited about that. Again, I'm energized by these kinds of conversations, these kinds of things, the way they talked about the relational nature of the EPC and how it was one big family and all those things. I love that. Then I became the ministerial committee chair. You begin to dive in and you get to see like, okay, well, yeah, we have this great big family. And like a lot of families were dysfunctional in some ways and functional in other ways. And, and I want to be a part of helping us become more functional. And so I'm working with that MinCom chair, coming to these meetings at NBC, processing with other MinCom chairs, the things that you got to process. We had to discipline five pastors when I was the MinCom chair, had to walk through those processes. Those are really challenging, all of the different things, right? And, and as you do that and you're interacting, what I began to see is that, okay, we're in the midst of a really significant transition in the EPC. The first generation that started the EPC, got this thing rolling, mm-hmm. led churches for years and years and years. They are largely moving off the scene, and we're now into the second generation of and this we're 40, We're 43 right. years old, so that's, that's, a, right. that's a generation. That's right a there. generation. We're now in the second iteration of that. And as that happens, what happens is the original family feel all those relationships. We're all together all of that kind of stuff, you start to lose a little bit of that as an organization grows. And we've grown significantly. that can be disorienting, right? right? Totally disorienting. So what has to happen? Well, you have to begin to build in processes and systems to carry the freight. The relationships, yes, we want to still maintain those relationships, but we don't have the benefit of all being kind of at the beginning, the founding, all of that. We don't have the benefit of that. So we're going to have to work harder at the relational side, and we're going to have to build systems and processes to help carry the freight. And I'm really good at those things. I love that kind of stuff. I'm a systems thinker. Some people might be a little nervous there, Doug, because they hear institution. Totally. We're going to become a big bureaucracy with a big institutional infrastructure. I mean, Uh, that's right. That's not really what you're talking about. No, no, no. Yeah. Put all that aside. It's relational systems. You build as almost like as little as you need to. I kind of look at it as like the trellis, right? That the vine gets to kind of climb up and go in all kinds of different directions. You need a trellis. Otherwise the vine sort of dies on the ground, but you certainly don't want it to be like in a greenhouse where you're just like over the top of it and like micromanaging it and all that kind of stuff. So you you build just enough to let the organization grow and thrive and do the things that it needs to do. So that's what I'm about. And as we've gotten into those conversations, of course, going through COVID, all the things, what am I reading? I'm reading from Barna. I'm reading from Pew. I'm reading from all these organizations about how many pastors are struggling. I talked to a guy the other day named Jeff Surratt, who's, you know, connected to thousands of pastors across the country. And he's telling me every single pastor he talks to is thinking about quitting. Every single one. And I'm like devastated by this because what is going to happen to the bride of Christ if pastors start basically bailing because it's just too hard? Why is it hard? Well, oh my gosh, think about all the changes that have taken place over the last just five years, but 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, how the pastoral office has changed, the expectations have changed, culture has changed. 
we have lost home field advantage on some level here in America, right? All the different dynamics that are in play for pastors and the pressure that that creates. And so I'm in these MinCom meetings, I'm in these NBC meetings, I'm hearing about pastors really struggling. And, I, and of course, my heart is like, okay, how do we, how do we help them? So that tees up the pilot That's project. Right. Talk to us about this yeah. pilot project coming out of the Ministerial Vocations Committee. Yeah. So we, you know, me again, I'm like, well, let's, let's, if we're going to talk about this stuff, like let's actually do something like let's gather some data. Let's see what is the state of the pastorate and the APC? How are our pastors, our men and women who are leading churches feeling about their role, their office? Are they thriving? Are they doing well? Are they not doing well? So what we did was we put together this pilot project and what we started with was, hey, we're going to find the best research out there from the Lilly Foundation, from Duke, from these other organizations about what does it take for a pastor to thrive in the 21st century in America, in the American context, what does it take? Recognizing obviously it's gotta be contextualized to urban, rural, suburban, I mean, definitely communities needs to be contextualized, but in general, what needs to happen for pastors to thrive. And what they've all landed on essentially, and what we're teasing out with this pilot project is really exploring three core competencies. The first one is your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't have a vibrant, growing relationship with your heavenly father, you cannot do this. In fact, there was an article the other day that made the rounds. It was on the EPC Facebook pastors page. Yeah. Made the rounds. That's probably gotten more traction right. than any uh, conversation. A guy who time. bailed, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you read the article and there's literally no mention of Jesus Christ. And I'm thinking, well, of course, like there's no way I can do this job without Christ. No way. So we want to focus there. So the first competency is spiritual vitality. The second competency is, of course, biblical and theological expertise, something that we have a lot of thankfully training on from our seminaries and some incredible training programs that we've always had historically we want to continue to build that competency, grow that competency, grow in our ability to preach and teach the Word of God faithfully and apply it to people's lives. And then finally, and this is a real missing piece for so many pastors and so many pastors I know that have failed out of ministry, this is the one that really trips them up, and that's organizational leadership. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to run a 501c3 organization, which all of our churches are, in the United States and all of the pressures that come with that in terms of budgets and personnel and all the things, right, that go along with that, leading effective meetings, that's the stuff that when I talk to pastor after pastor after pastor after pastor, they say, seminary never trained me for it. Seminary never got me ready for this. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. And they feel so inadequate. And then those inadequacies lead to them chasing other things in order to feel adequate. And then that sometimes leads them down these roads. All that to say, we're taking 65 pastors through, 65 teaching elders in the EPC. They're local church pastors. We focused in on the local church, and we're taking them through this pilot project. It's going to be three months led by Roy Yankee on spiritual vitality, three months led by Kent Matthews on biblical and theological expertise, and then three months led by myself on organizational leadership. The goal is to gather data. We took them through a survey at the beginning. We're going to do a survey at the end to see, did we move the needle on some of these things in an effort to gather some data that hopefully will then inform what do we do with ordination standards? What do we do with continuing education? What do we do with these kinds of things? Again, as we're trying as an APC, as a denomination, to set up an environment where pastors can thrive. Right. And it's very timely because this last General Assembly approved in that interim committee to look at our ordination process and standards. And, you know, one of the things that stands out for me, Doug, is that we're the only, oh, I hate to talk about it as a professional trade or anything like That's that, right. but doctors, lawyers, right. uh, almost any field, you have to get continuing education. My wife's preschool teachers 
have to get continuing education right. in order to maintain once, their credential. Once we lay hands on you, then That's we're right. done, right? That's exactly over, right. right. So. We're also, by the way, the only, I had a ruling elder point this out to me. One of my ruling elders, it was really brilliant. He's a banker. He said, we're the only professional class that graduates from grad school and gets put into the top position in organizations right out of grad school. No one else does that. That's fascinating and I was observation. Like, Brilliant. No yeah. wonder so many of us are struggling, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, That's right. to bear that burden right out of grad school. That's a great observation. I mean, he's like, Doug, every other business, organization, whatever, there's a, there's a, like a training time, like an on the job yeah. kind of training time yeah. to get you ready for that top spot. Right. Pastors come out and boom, solo pastor, senior pastor, whatever, or even if you're an associate pastor, you're running something. You've got these significant pastoral yeah, responsibilities. Yeah. Well, let's let's briefly drill down on those three yeah. core competencies, if you could, please. Sure. In Faith for Exiles, David Kinnaman and the Barna folks said the number one kind of point of perseverance just for a follower of Jesus in this digital Babylon in which we live was basically an intimate relationship Absolutely. with Jesus. So any counsel, you've been doing this for a while for yeah. a pastor on the first well, core competency? Yeah. So here's some basic stuff, right? Take a Sabbath. One day out of every seven. Now I'm not a strict Sabbatarian in that sense, but like one day out of every seven, I do that. And you got to do that and you, you have to use your Sabbath well. It's not just, I'm going to mow the lawn and do all the house projects, literally take a Sabbath, have yeah. one day out of every seven where you rest, where you worship, where you engage God in some fresh ways that you don't do the other six days of the week. You don't answer email. You're not available text unless it's an emergency or something, but take a Sabbath, take your four weeks of vacation, take your vacation. Like you need that recharging time. So there's some basic study thing. leave, study leave, take yep. your study leave. So like there's some things built into our system that if we'll just take advantage of those things, right. we can create a more sustainable life. Obviously have a daily time with the Lord, spend time with your spouse, spend time with your kids. My associate pastor just did this for our staff retreat a couple of weeks ago. It's that old image of when you're, when you're trying to fill up a jar full of rocks, you put the big rocks in first, right? Then you kind of, the smaller rocks, then the sand, right? And, and eventually it fills up. If you put the sand in first and then you're trying to squeeze the big rocks in, there's no room for it. So identify the big rocks in your life, that time with the Lord, Sabbath time, the time with your spouse, your kids, and put those big rocks in place into your schedule. Everybody knows this. Yep. This is not, a, but we need people to walk alongside us to help us hold us accountable for that. So that's the second piece, right? Spiritual vitality. You gotta, you gotta have community. You can't do this alone. You'll, 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 you'll die on, on the vine if you try to do it alone. So you gotta have people around you. So part of this pilot project is to say, you've got people. Yeah. other teaching elders that you can call on, that you can build relationships with, that you can do this. So that's the big piece with the spiritual vitality. Okay. So the second one is uh, the theological right. uh, integrity, the Presbyterian Reformed tradition. We, we live in our head a lot. We do. And we're probably better at the theological piece than most. Right. What do you think are the pitfalls or what are the things that we could build on to improve that core competency? Well, I think to your point that you made a little bit ago, this idea that somehow seminary is that the ending point, at least for us, right? Like there's no expectation or no required expectation of continuing ed. A lot of pastors do continue ed, which is good, but for some pastors, they don't. Well, shoot, I mean, I'm a much better preacher than I was when I first got started, but it's because I've continued to be disciplined about working at my craft, continued to be disciplined about learning how to exegete the scripture more faithfully, continued to dive into theological and biblical 
material that's being put out there constantly by credible theologians, continuing to engage that material so that my mind continues to grow, and then therefore my ability then to preach and teach the Word of God to my folks continues to grow commensurately as well. Just this idea that we do a very good job. This is the one competency, man. We 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 have a great system in play. RTS, Covenant, all the seminaries, Gordon-Conwell, Denver, where I teach, they do a great job on this stuff. So we're really pretty good on this, but... Keep it going. Keep it going. That's yeah. exactly right. Lifetime learner. That's right. Yeah. It was uh, one of the stunning things for me, Doug, is that I you know, graduated from seminary, then I went and got a, a doctorate of ministry in right. preaching right. under Hedden Robinson at Gordon-Conwell. And 10 years later, I was invited by Gordon-Conwell to come back and do a THM in preaching. Yeah. And, you know, like I needed another degree, like I needed a whole right. other. <laughs> totally. But I will tell you, yeah. going back and taking classes again... Yeah. I took a class from Brian Loritz on on black preaching. Right. Um, I took a class on persuasive preaching. I took a class. I ended up taking another class with Brian Chapel. That's right. Center preaching. And I will tell you, after having been preaching at that point right. for probably 25, 30 years, just going back and sharpening my skills, my, my tools, rethinking some stuff. I had somebody at, at Memorial Park say to me, I was going through that THM, and they said, man, I don't know what you're doing in that class, but it's your preaching's that's right improving and i'm like I, on the one hand i took that as a compliment yeah right. on the other hand i was like i thought my preaching was okay but but i think we all need to continue to be lifelong learners that's right? exactly right and our people expect that from us they need that from us so third competency take me to organization this is your so sweet spot this is my sweet spot and this is the most difficult because none of us want to perceive our jobs as being ceos none of us want to perceive our jobs it feels as very being, secular it right? does feel very secular and i get all of that and i'm but not we're suggest- reformed and so we should have no sacred secular exactly. Exactly. And I'm not even suggesting that you run it like a CEO. Don't do that. I don't run Pepsi that way. That's not how we roll at Pepsi. I mean, you talk to my elders. Our session meetings are incredible times of spiritual growth and vitality. In fact, we meet for four hours. We have a meal together. We fellowship together. We pray together. We study the Bible together. That's literally two and a half, three hours of the four hour time together. Right. And then we cover a little business at the end and then we go out for a drink afterwards. That's our life together organizationally. So again, I don't want people to hear organizational leadership. Oh, now you're going to take me to GE and now you're going to take me to all these great business leaders and the Global Leadership Summit and the business leaders that come in. Look, if that's your thing, great. If that really helps for you, what we're talking about here is a spiritual form of leadership that takes seriously the dynamics that are present in organizational life in America today. And you have to be aware of them. And most pastors weren't given that kind of training in seminary. And and I don't know that our seminaries honestly are really equipped for that. They don't have the people on staff to teach it. Right. Right. And, And so I'm not suggesting that they can't be equipped for it. I'm just saying they aren't right now currently set up for that. But even like things like how do you run an effective session meeting? How do you drive an agenda? I can't tell you the number of ruling elders I've talked to. Their pastor, their new pastor, lost them at the first session meeting because they couldn't effectively lead a meeting. It ended up lasting hours and hours and hours. And these are the core leaders. And these session members are like, what have we got ourselves into? I've got a book inside of me that I probably won't ever find a publisher for. But the the working title in my head is Meetings Matter. Being a student of meetings, curating those, thinking about group dynamics. What are people like when they come in? How do you hope that they'll leave? What do they hope to do together? What sense of community is being developed? I mean, that kind of stuff actually... It matters. It does matter. It matters. Even things like, you know, one of the things I tell my staff all the time, like, if you don't return emails and texts and phone calls within 24 hours, you're losing people. They're losing confidence in you. They're lo- you, not consciously, 
but subconsciously they're learning. You're teaching them. I can't be counted on. Now, that doesn't mean that you allow everything to drive you and you're working 24-7. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just simply talking about just basic organizational dynamics. So there's some of that that you got to learn, but even the higher level stuff, again, HR budgets, like we're all 501c3 nonprofits in today's world. How do you engage? Like post-COVID, like should we take the, it was the PPP. Should we should we take that or not? And why? Are, are, are our pastors actually equipped to have that conversation? What are the pros? What are the cons? If we decide not to take it, why do we decide not to take it? If we decide to take it, why should we take it? What are we going to do with that? Like you have to be equipped, I think, on some level. Not that you have to lead everything. Maybe you have a good ruling elder who's good at that. But then you have to be equipped from a leadership standpoint to empower that ruling elder, delegate that, right? All of those things. Yes. So that's the stuff that I found over the years has really tripped pastors up. And so if we can help them build that competency then um, and move the needle there, then hopefully that leads them to better boundaries and healthier way of life and healthier systems in their churches, which all of that is positive. So all of this uh, kind of points like a big arrow, and I want to end with this yeah. if we could, and we'd, we want to be brief here, but it points us to this question of ministry readiness yeah. and, and typically ordination standards and exams are designed to determine right. ministry readiness. That's right. So how do you see the pilot project and all that you're doing pointing us in the direction of taking a fresh look at the process of preparing people for ministry right. and saying, yes, you're you're ready to start? Well, I'm an outcomes-based guy. So every system is perfectly designed to get the result that it gets. And so right now we have a system that is getting these negative results. So many pastors wanting to quit, so many pastors burning out, so many pastors really struggling. Like we know that. We all know that. We all feel that. And in part, that's because our system is, that's what our system is producing. It used to produce different quality. Now it produces this quality. So now we got to ask ourselves, how do we shape the system? So hopefully the pilot project provides some of the data that will inform what standards are we actually shooting for? What are we actually testing for? What are we actually trying to measure here so that we set our pastors up for the most success possible? And I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be exciting. I don't know where it's all going to end, but it's, it is pretty fun to kind of like, again, play with it, think about it, wrestle with it from a reform perspective, from a biblical perspective. I want to keep emphasizing that because, again, I know people hear organizational leadership and they get all stressed out. Don't be stressed. It, it, we have to think about this from that reform biblical perspective so that it stays within how we think about these things. And I'm excited to see where it goes. Well, I think it's going to be a gift for the EPC because it's an in-house project. Yeah. But I think the learnings from it will have greater application even beyond the EPC. I hope so. Yeah. Well, Doug, thank you. That conversation's always fun. And I hope others who have listened in today are getting their brains around some of these ideas and thinking, this is what some of our national leaders are trying to wrestle with, folks. We're not just kind of on uh, on autopilot here trying to figure out what tomorrow brings. We're really praying, planning, seeking the Lord together. Groups like the Ministerial Vocations Committee are actually a super fun group because they're creative, they love Jesus, they enjoy one another, and they really think creatively about what is it going to look like for us to be faithful to carrying out the Great Commission in the next generation. And I'm so grateful that you're a part of it. Thanks, Dean.
Yep. Well, thank you everyone for listening into this conversation. If this has got your attention and maybe excited a bit of your biblical imagination, maybe even expanded your horizons a little bit in terms of leadership in the EPC, we hope that you would maybe like us on social, share this with others, pass this on to your elders, to your pastors, your small group leaders. We would love for you to help us get the word out. We're a pretty low cost, uh, no frills group and uh, word of mouth is our best uh, advertisement. So if you can help us get that word out, it's a huge blessing and we hope it will be an encouragement to others. So as we close, we do as we always do, which is closing with a benediction, a good word that comes from God's word. It is this, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation for in him, all things were created. That includes processes, Amen. systems, and structures Amen. in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, for he is the head of the body, the church. That is our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name and under his lordship of all things that until the next time we gather, I bid grace and peace to you. Thank you again for joining us. On behalf of the entire team, please join us for our next episode. For more information about the EPC, including a directory of local churches, online resources, and much more, visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.